0: This beautiful Airbus EC-130 is about to land on the rooftop pad of a major trauma center in downtown St. Louis, Missouri. But for some reason, the pilot comes up short, crashes into the parking lot, with the helicopter erupting into a massive fireball. How did this helicopter fall out of the sky, and was there something crazy with the wind? Did crew resource management break down? Was this pilot even qualified to be the pilot in command of this helicopter in the first place? And what in the world is a crash-resistant fuel tank? We'll find out on this episode of The Dr. Medic. You know, I vividly remember this accident taking place as I had just left the air medical world to start working full-time at the university. I flew in the very same model of aircraft just a few hours west of where this accident took place, and all I really remember is that the helicopter crashed on approach to the helipad, but just like many other stories, the more research I started to do, the more I found out just how much more there was to the story. This accident takes place at 2310 hours at night on March 6, 2015 at St. Louis University Hospital, otherwise simply known as SLU. The story comes requested by several viewers and involves the helicopter operator Air Methods doing business as Arch Air Medical Service, which we will simply just identify them as Arch. This is somewhat of a hybrid setup between what we would call community-based helicopter services and hospital-based services. As Arch is quite a dynamic hem service with a bunch of bases in eastern Missouri and throughout southern Illinois. Now, their fleet has changed a couple times over the years, but they have one of the coolest fleets that I have ever seen in a hem service with several Bell 407s, an EC-130, a couple EC-135s, and they even still have a couple of those badass money pits, otherwise known as BK 117s. Some of these bases are based at big hospitals in the cities and are focused on specialty transport like impellas and balloon pumps and ECMO, as well as pediatrics and neonates. And from what I understand, they have a wickedly high expectation for their clinical skills and overall patient care, and the med crew that I spoke to all said that the clinical aspect of working at Arch has elevated their clinical abilities to absolutely no end. The aviation side of things is run by Air Methods, who is one of the largest, if not the largest, air medical provider in the world. They have hundreds of bases and hundreds of aircraft and thousands of employees. They are also quite a diverse company as they have multiple divisions aside from helicopter EMS, which include things like medical billing, clinical education, aviation contracts for things like outfitting helicopters with medical interiors for military, and they are also in the tourism business with a company called Blue Hawaiian Helicopters, which, as you might have guessed, provides some of the greatest tourism flights in the beautiful state of Hawaii. But let's hold on to Blue Hawaii for a bit and we'll come back to them. Now, the aircraft in this incident is this EC 130B4, manufactured in 2010. This beautiful helicopter was powered by a single 730 horsepower Turbomeca aerial 2B1 engine and had a total of 1,378 hours on the airframe and also had just passed its last inspection just 24 hours earlier on March 5th, 2015. Now, the EC-130 was basically an updated version of the original AS350 by French helicopter maker Aerospatiale, with the AS350 now being nearly 40 years old. Throughout the 90s, the 130 continued to be developed by Aerospatiale, with the development eventually being taken over by Eurocopter once those two companies merged. So in really basic terms, just imagine if you took an early model AS350, slapped a giant glass bubble over the front, added a FADEC system, and then put this giant whale tail fenestron tail rotor on it, and boom, you've got yourself an EC-130. Now the 130 finally was approved and came out in 2001 and was really designed for the helicopter tourism industry. Most single pilot helicopters place the pilot in the front right seat, and then they may remove the flight controls for the left seat. This means that when a pilot is giving a tour, they have to be super cognizant of what the passenger to their left is doing because the collective is really just out in the open and it will not take much to render the helicopter uncontrollable if the collective is messed with and the pilot doesn't see it happen. So they actually designed the 130 with the pilot sitting in the front left with no controls at all for a co-pilot to the right. This allows passengers to sit to the right of the pilot and also keeps the collective out of harm's way since it will be over to the pilot's left. For tours, this leaves two seats seats to the right and four in the back, but in helicopter EMS, it leaves the entire right side open for a patient or an isolate with room for two or even three seats in the back row, depending on how the setup the crew chooses. If you have seen a patient loaded into a Bell 206 or 407 or an AS350, then you know what I mean when I say that it is a tight fit. But with the EC-130, there is a ton of room to maneuver the patient around on the sled, and if you're the med crew member who is sitting over to the right, you basically have the entire area open in front of you and tons of room to move around and take care of your patient. And I can even attest that you can perform the world's greatest CPR in this aircraft, if you're sitting on the right side of the patient. But there are some limitations of this aircraft and we're gonna get to them a little bit later on in this episode. And on a completely unrelated side note, Airbus right now has currently been flight testing an engine backup system in their new H-130 where an electric motor can provide up to 30 seconds of full engine power if there is an engine failure, which is more than enough time for a pilot to get the aircraft safely on the ground. If this works, this could be an absolute game changer for single engine. Helicopters. The weather was clear that night and was VMC all over the St. Louis area. The wind at the ground was just six or seven knots out of the southwest with a temperature of three degrees Celsius and a dew point of negative six degrees Celsius. But the profile for that night showed that just a few hundred feet off the ground the wind speeds increased to 25 knots up at around 800 feet and up to around 30 to 40 knots up around 1,500 feet above the ground. These wind gusts may very well have played a key role in this accident. The crew consisted of the pilot, 52-year-old Ronald Rector, flight nurse Ashley, and flight paramedic Kevin. Now, Ashley had been employed with Arch for just about a month at the time, but did have a couple years experience flying for another local flight service. And at the time, Kevin, the flight paramedic, had been with Arch for about one year. Now, the pilot Ronald held a commercial pilot certificate with rotorcraft, helicopter, and instrument helicopter ratings that were issued back in 1992. His total hours? Well, I'm gonna see if I can give this a shot. Now, prior to starting at Air Methods in May of 2013, Ronald worked at Hawaii, Hawaiian blue helicopters, and before that, he flew in the Army. Now, remember that Blue Hawaiian is a division of Air Methods, and I once heard an Air Methods executive back in the day say that Blue Hawaiian was sort of like their minor leagues for HEMS pilots, as the pilots who did not yet have the hours for HEMS operations could go fly tours and rack up tons of hours just flying people around the great state of Hawaii. Several people mentioned to me, which I could not independently verify, that pilot Ronald was flying an EC-130 at Hawaiian Blue when he experienced a bad overtorque event in the aircraft, and instead of being terminated, he was allowed to resign and moved over to the EMS side of things. Now, I did reach out to Air Methods for a comment on this story, and as of this recording, I have not yet received a response. Anyway, so when pilot Ronald applied at Blue Hawaiian on May 5, 2013, this is what he listed on his flight resume, that he had a total of 2,244 total total hours, all of which, all of which were in military helicopters with a pilot and command time of 1,155 hours. He said he was rated in the EC-130B4, the Bell UH UH-1 or Huey, the Bell AH AH-1 or Cobra, and the Boeing AH AH-64A and D models of the Apache helicopter. But I don't think the EC-130 is a military helicopter, is it? He was then hired at Air Methods on October 21st, 2013 and listed that he had the following hours. Total hours of 2,503 with 1,338 hours as pilot-in-command with 250 hours in the EC-130, 233 hours in the Huey and Cobra, and 2,015 hours in the Apaches. I'm gonna let you go back and pause that video and you just tell me whether or not any of what I just said makes any sense at all we'll come back to it. This flight crew was already at SLU Hospital, as they had just dropped off a patient earlier when they received another request for service. They did accept the flight, and less than an hour later, they transported the patient back to SLU. A side note is that the reports state that this patient was not in any type of critical condition. This return flight had perfect weather, but it did have those wind gusts that I mentioned earlier, and otherwise their risk assessment was assessed as low. At the time, when landing at SLU, they would normally land on the official landing pad, which is officially called a heliport, with the name of MO-55, which is about 10 or 11 stories on top of the hospital, or maybe even a bit higher. Now, it was well known to the local flight crews and pilots that this wasn't exactly the easiest pad to land on due to some obstructions and the shape of the surrounding walls and buildings, which can create some crazy crosswinds and tailwinds seemingly out of nowhere. But even though it wasn't the easiest pad to land on, most services still did land there and they did so without incident. On this first approach to the pad, with the med crew and the patient on board, and just a few seconds from landing, the pilot suddenly called out that he had 25 knot winds. The paramedic noted that the wind sock by the elevator shaft was pointed away from them, meaning that they had a pretty strong tailwind. Pilot Ronald approached the pad a little sideways and then informed the crew that, quote, it was going to get a little windy and that things were going to get a little rough. The med crew noted that the approach to the pad was very shallow and very kind of straight in, as if the pilot was simply wanting to creep straight forward with something like a five degree approach, as opposed to approaching the pad on a normal angle of closer to about 10 degrees, at least as compared to the other pilots they had flown with. The crew mentioned that there was an awful lot of yawing and rolling and that once over the pad, it seemed like Ronald was hovering over the pad by just a few feet and was having trouble getting the skids on. The ground. Now, the flight nurse that was on board stated that it really seemed like Ronald was having a hard time, and that had the situation continued for just a few more seconds, that she would have asked him to abort and do a go around and regroup. But they are able to land, and now they are all safely on the pad, and the medical crew are unloading their patient and walking them into the elevator shaft building when Ronald tells them that he wants to keep the aircraft on the helipad for a while. But the medical crew, probably having no idea why Ronald wants to stay up on the pad, tells him that this is really not a normal thing to do as this is an elevated pad, and it's at a major level one trauma center, and that other helicopters are gonna probably be coming in. Ronald does not report with an explanation of why he wants to stay on the pad, which I can only presume is because he wants to wait until the winds die down, and instead says okay and takes off to go refuel. He flies just about a mile and a half away to one of the other main arch bases in St. Louis to refuel and tells the crew to let him know when they are ready and he'll come pick them up. At 22.58, the flight nurse sends Ronald a text telling him that they are ready and he replies back right away that he is on the way. She noted that about 11 minutes later she saw the time and thought that it was taking a while for him to return. And at this point, the flight nurse and the paramedic are at the top of the elevator shaft with all of their equipment waiting for him, but they're inside that little building that's up there and they're waiting for Ronald to get back. They start to hear some rotor slaps and assume that Ronald is getting close. They then note that it got very quiet and they looked outside and didn't see anything. And just a moment later, they heard a loud bang that sounded like an explosion and walked out on the pad. Now remember, this pad is probably over a hundred feet feet up in the air, so they truly have a bird's-eye view of the surrounding streets. They look over one of the buildings next to them and simply see their downed dc 130 in a parking lot. Now, they are not looking straight down on the aircraft, but are looking about a block away and can see the black silhouette of the aircraft when they start to see blue arcs kind of appearing, presumably from the helicopter's electrical system arcing. This continues for a moment, and then they start to see flames that simply continued to grow until the entire aircraft was fully engulfed. Now, this whole chain of events occurs over just a few seconds. A pilot, Ronald Sector, did not survive and the aircraft was burned beyond all recognition. So what happened here? Well, I can assure you that this was far more than just missing an approach and far more than just pilot error. Let's first talk about the crew resource management or CRM part of this. Keeping in mind that in addition to the NTSB reports, I did interview several former and current Arch Air medical crew members for this story, all of whom chose to speak on the condition of anonymity. Now, Ronald had worked at Arch for a little over a year. You have a flight paramedic on board who at the time had less than a year experience and a flight nurse with just a few weeks on the job, with this being her very first shift as a released med crew member where she is not riding as the third rider. So it is really no question that at the time of the crash, there was not a lot of experience on board, at least at this particular employer, for any of the crew members. Now I heard again and again that Ronald had a very unique personality and that it was well known to the local med crew members that many folks felt that Ronald was an unsafe pilot. I heard several crew members state that they were told up front to be careful around Ronald as quote, he will get you killed. Ronald was not described as being a mean guy really, or a jerk, or anything like that, but was often identified as kind of very passive aggressive and just plain quirky. It was agreed that Ronald was very indecisive when it came to making weather decisions, and it was described that Ronald would be on the phone with Aircom and be pacing back and forth and in and out of the base, back and forth, in and out, and unable to make a decision on the weather. Now, all of this undoubtedly would have led to some folks just simply feeling uncomfortable flying with Ronald and even more possible than that is that Ronald may have felt a bit isolated and maybe less willing to communicate how he felt during a flight. Why is any of this important? Well, it's important because Ronald said that he wanted to stay on top of that pad. I would bet he felt that way because the winds were not right and he felt it might have been unsafe, especially given the rocky landing that he just did. But. He did not convey that to the medical crew, and so when he suggested to stay up there, they very likely could have misinterpreted that request as another passive-aggressive move, or maybe they just didn't understand why he wanted to do that. And also, it was alleged that during the initial flight that it was discussed about landing at another pad on the ground and then being transported by ground EMS, but they obviously decided on continuing their course and landing on top of the hospital pad. So, one way or another, CRM in this case broke down. A short tidbit about wind charts for health helicopters. Typically, the flight manuals from the manufacturers for these helicopters will include a section that discusses the critical wind azimuth or a maximum safe relative wind chart. They might list all types of numbers and safe wind limits related to sustained winds, wind gusts, headwinds, tailwinds, and even the role the direction of these winds might have in relation to the helicopter and specifically the tail rotor on some of them, and they might advise that operating the helicopter beyond these limits could cause catastrophic issues with the control of the helicopter. And as part of the training for any new pilot at a HEMS service would be to learn these charts so that the pilot has the information about what the maximum limits might be for any of the different wind situations that they might encounter. For instance, the Bell 407 and Augusta 119 show these charts directly in their flight manual, which undoubtedly aids in the pilot's decision-making process while flying the helicopter. But for some reason, for the EC-130, the manual does not show any of this with investigators finding concluding that, quote, a review of the Eurocopter EC-130 B-4 flight manual under revision 9 revealed that the manual did not contain wind limits nor critical wind azimuth or maximum safe relative wind chart. Now, it is certainly a possibility that Ronald was operating the aircraft beyond its capabilities with the wind, but since the manual did not have these maximums published, we really have no way of knowing for sure whether Ronald even knew what the maximum limits might be in the first place. Now, there's not many things in this world as cool is landing one of these helicopters on top of a tall hospital with a landing pad on top like this. Most of these pads are privately owned and this one was no exception. Why is that important? Because even though the FAA will still provide regulatory requirements for these pads, they are 100% voluntary and the federal regulations that exist cannot be enforced. I do wonder how many flight crews out there across the United States believe that all of these pads are regulated and safe. This particular pad, like I said, is identified as MO55, which even though it is not regulated by the FAA, still has its information publicized on flight charts and with the FAA. Now this pad was built in 1986 and was inspected that very year with an aeronautical study being published which says that the pad has a 50 by 50 touchdown area with adequate ingress and egress 180 degrees apart and that the pad is safe for use so long as several conditions are followed and maintained. Those conditions are that they must be able to maintain a clear approach and departure path to allow for a minimum of an 8-to-1 glide scope, meaning that the pathways must remain clear to allow an aircraft to approach or depart flying one foot up or down for every 8 feet forward in a clear transitional surface with a 2-to-1 slope extending 250 feet in every direction from the center of the pad. Well, just one month after this accident, the NTSB put in a request for the FAA to do another inspection of the MO55 pad, which was performed on April 16th, 2015, nearly 30 years after the first study was completed. Now, the study was quite in-depth and found that the ingress and egress of this pad is obstructed by permanent objects that pose a serious hazard to helicopters and that they cannot recommend a safe approach or departure route. The top of the hospital is obstructed by an elevator shaft, wind cones, smoke stacks, multiple church spires, multiple antennas, and even worse, within the actual FATO or final approach and takeoff area, there were several raised obstructions, such as handrails, the foyer to the elevator shaft, raised perimeter lights, and the building ventilation equipment. Now, absolutely none of this is in compliance with FAA standards, and the study finally concluded that helicopter operations cannot safely be conducted from this site, that they object to this landing area, and they finally concluded that, quote, the final approach and takeoff area and its associated safety area contain obstructions, which significantly exceed the maximum height recommended for objects within this area. the structures and ductwork associated with the building ventilation systems, four raised perimeter and floodlights, an adjacent structure that houses an elevator shaft, and two handrails that extend from the entrance of the elevator shaft to the edge of the touchdown and lift-off area. They also noted that this pad was not in compliance with its markings either as it has this weird triangle instead of the normal hospital H and that it is also not lighted appropriately. There are lots of resources out there for pilots to look up the identification about heliports and airports, and when you look up MO55, such as on airnav.com, it does show this pad, but states, quote, due to multiple obstructions within the touchdown and liftoff area and the final approach and takeoff area, no clear ingress egress exists for this heliport exercise caution. And while SLU did build some new surrounding hospitals within the past few years with pads on the ground that certainly appear to be more in compliance with the FAA regs, this pad, MO55, 55 is still in use today by medical helicopters while transitioning between those other paths. Now, with helicopters, the term settling with power can be a complicated one, and I could do a whole episode on it, but I'm just gonna sum it up this way. During an ascent or descent, a helicopter works by pushing air down through the blades with the majority of that downward force taking place nearer the blade tips, since they are going so much faster than the root of the blades might be. Now, under certain conditions, such as having a super steep approach angle of something like 25, Or 30 degrees, and maybe a downwind or a strong tailwind, and a descent rate of over 300 feet per minute, the air that the blade is pushing down may actually be overcome by the amount of air coming up through the blades, which thereby starts to reduce the overall effectiveness of the rotor blades and their downward force. This would be called a vortex ring state, which then leads to a condition called settling with power, where the helicopter continues to descend or even might descend quicker when more power is applied. And in a sense, settling. Settling with power is a condition where the main rotor blades lose their effectiveness and the helicopter just kind of drops straight down in an uncontrolled fashion. But there are ways for a pilot to maneuver out of this. But When you're just a couple of hundred feet off the ground with obstructions everywhere, there's not really anywhere else to go except straight down. And to add to this, the tail of the EC-130 is a giant sail and the 130 is already well known to be a terrible performer in slow speeds. It does appear that Ronald had a strong tailwind, specifically coming from the Southwest and due to how hairy his previous landing was, which remember the med crew said appeared quite shallow and straight, Ronald very well may have decided to take a much steeper approach than normal to counteract the issues that he experienced during the first landing. This steep angle, with his previous lack of forward speed, a probable quick descent rate of above 300 feet per minute, with a heavy tailwind, with all of the obstructions, with that big fat EC-130 tail, all of these conditions mixed together most likely led to a ring vortex state, which then caused the settling with power, which then led to the aircraft falling straight downward. In an uncontrolled fashion until it impacted the ground. The aircraft wreckage came to rest near the west parking lot entrance to the hospital. Now, what you see in these pictures is not there anymore, as the entire area has been rebuilt with the addition of a brand new hospital just across the street to the north. Now, along the top of the west entrance to one of the buildings, there were some blue marks that appeared to come from the tail of the helicopter hitting the building on the way down. Now there was nothing wrong with any of the controls or the engine of this aircraft. All of the items items that might have caused a fire such as oil and fuel and air connections were all still attached and the input pinion mark position on the gearbox tells us that the engine was providing power and torque at the time of impact. So, if all the lines were still attached and the engine was still working, where did the fire come from? Well, the 130 unfortunately suffers from what many might consider a terrible design flaw and that the fuel tank tends to completely kind of just fall apart during heavy descent crashes and this spring Fuel all over the hot engine parts as well as the electrical systems, which are most likely still electrically charged. This can lead to a large post impact fire and unfortunately tends to kill a lot of people around the world. Now, remember this Metaflight video where they were all soaked with fuel? Same situation, it just didn't catch on fire. Now, the NTSB did have a full autopsy performed on Ronald and they found that his cause of death was not what you might think. Now, while he did have some traumatic injuries such as sternal and cervical fractures, he did not have any other traumatic injuries that would have led to his death. But he did have quite a bit of soot deposits in his trachea and multiple thermal fractures. The fact that he did not have soot deep down inside his lungs suggests that Ronald was probably alive just after the aircraft initially impacted the ground, but then, when the aircraft was consumed by the fire, he only had to take one or two breaths of that super toxic smoke and those superheated gases to die almost instantly. The NTSB wrote that Ronald sustained fatal injuries due to the subsequent fuel tank fire slash explosion, which otherwise would have been a survivable accident. So why does this particular helicopter tend to have this issue with its fuel tanks? Well, it's not just this one. It's any helicopter in the family of AS350s, H125s, and EC130s. These helicopters are all basically in the same family and have their transmission and engine placed almost directly on top of the fuel tank. So when these aircraft crash, much of the drivetrain tends to slam through the top of the helicopter and then even through the fuel tank. And if there's any kind of forward motion at all during impact, all of this force and then all of the fuel is sent forward into the cabin where all of the occupants would be. Now, back in 1994, the FAA did revise their standards and required that all newly certified rotorcraft have to have comprehensive crash-resistant fuel system design and test criteria. This then led to two new federal regulations which state, to minimize the hazard of fuel fires to occupants following an otherwise survivable impact like a crash landing, the fuel systems must incorporate design features of this section. But that was way back in 1994 right? And this helicopter was made in 2010. So what's the issue? Well, the EC-130, even though it was released in 2001, did not get a new type certificate and was still kind of piggybacking off of the AS350, which was first developed and flown back in 1975. So this new FAA requirement was not required for any of those aircraft, including the EC-130 in this accident. In fact, in the 20 years since the FAA created that new requirement, the NTSB has had had 135 accidents in the United States involving helicopter crashes that resulted in post-crash fires. Out of 135 of those helicopters, only three of them had a crash-resistant fuel tank. As of 2014, the FAA showed around 5,600 helicopters in the United States that were made before 1994, and of those, only 850 had been retrofitted with an updated crash-resistant fuel tank. This arch-slash-Air Methods crash in this episode along with another Air Methods crash in an AS350 from July of 2015 out of Frisco, Colorado, just a few months after this one, led to the NTSB to publish a safety recommendation report on crash-resistant fuel systems on Airbus helicopters on March 23rd, 2016. This safety recommendation urges the FAA and Europe's version of the FAA, which is called the European Aviation Safety Agency, or EASA, to prioritize approving retrofits for these helicopters and accelerating the availability of these crash-resistant systems to customers around the world. This same recommendation also went to Airbus, who did put out a safety information notice to all of their known customers of these aircraft of exactly what the issue is with the fuel tanks and how to order and buy and install the retrofits. I think these safety notices and bulletins were a great thing, but just like the fact that the landing pad in this accident was out of compliance but is not required to be fixed, so to goes it for these crash-resistant fuel systems and tanks on these Airbus helicopters. Unless the actual operators pay to fix them on their own dime, there is no requirement to do so. A shining light is that Medtrans, which is also one of the largest two or three HEMS operators in the States, did tell me that they have retrofitted all of their H-125s, which I assumed also mean all of their AS350s as well. I am not sure if they have any EC-130s in their fleet, and if they do, whether or not they were retrofitted. And a cool side note that the update version of the EC130, which is now officially called the H130, does already come with these crash-resistant systems already installed. And like I said earlier, I did inquire with Air Methods about this very same question and did not receive a response. I am curious, if you work on an AS350 or an H125 or an EC130, were you aware of these issues or the safety recommendations from the NTSB or the safety bulletins from Airbus? If so, do you know whether or not your aircraft has been outfitted with the crash-resistant fuel tanks. I am super eager to know, so please let me know in the comments below whether or not the aircraft that you're flying on has been retrofitted or not. In the end, the NTSB's final probable cause of this accident was Pilot Ronald's decision to land during unfavorable wind conditions, which resulted in a loss of control due to settling with power. Contributing to the accident were the lack of an adequate approach path due to numerous obstructions and the lack of available guidance regarding the helicopter's performance capabilities in the right quartering tailwind condition. This was a terrible accident and once again, it just seems unnecessary. It doesn't seem like there was some type of culture problem here, and to the contrary, ARCH is considered by many to be one of the premier programs in the country. They have super badass aircraft with medical crew who have standards that are absolutely through the roof. But in this case, even though there were many layers of that Swiss cheese model, this accident still occurred. Crew resource management, somewhere within the crew structure and the SMS safety reporting system, somewhere it simply broke down. You had a pilot that folks were concerned about, and those same folks seemed to feel like their concerns went unheard and unresolved. That same pilot very well may not have been the best person for the job and possibly had some uncertainty as to the validity of his resume. The hours did not seem to add up, and he didn't seem comfortable in this aircraft, but he was still somehow released to fly revenue flights with paying patients on board. In fact, prior to applying at Air Methods, pilot Ronald actually applied over at Airivac Life Team first. The Czech airman over there at Airivac, who interviewed Ronald, even wrote a letter to the FAA a couple of months after the accident, implying that Ronald was not being very forthcoming with getting his official Army records, which would have had his official flight times, so he did his own investigating and called one of his buddies over at Fort Campbell in Kentucky to verify Ronald's time listed in Apaches, only to find out that even though Ronald listed over 2,000 hours in the Apache, he actually had very limited time as pilot-in-command. And then, after repeated phone calls from Ronald about the job at Arivac, the Czech airmen finally had to tell Ronald that Arivac was not considering him for employment. I certainly hope that you learned something in this story, and I thank you for watching. We have to remember that these stories that I tell, that these episodes that we're doing, have nothing to do with trying to bash a company Or bash a service or somehow speak ill of those who have passed on. Human beings make mistakes. We all screw up. There's nobody in the world who has screwed up more than me, but we all have to learn from our mistakes. And in these cases, when the stakes are this high, where people's lives are at stake, we have got to be able to not be scared to tell the truth about what has happened in the past so that we all all of us can improve and learn moving forward. If you did enjoy this episode, please like and subscribe and share and comment and do all those things because I read every one of those comments, But. If you would really like to support this channel, please consider smashing that super thanks button that's up above underneath the video, or you can even find a Venmo link in the description below, or you can even use this QR code right here. Your support is really all that keeps this channel growing and giving me the time and the resources to keep creating more episodes for you. Stay safe, learn from the past, and please take care of each other.